Gracious Heavenly Father, Your Word says that Jesus is life. Without Him there is no hope. There is no life. And I ask as we go forward with this message, Heavenly Father, that You'd speak to us. That Your words would ring true and Your heart clear for us this resurrection day. And as we do so, Heavenly Father, remind us also that You are in this place. Receive our worship and receive this message as You anointed with Your words. In Jesus Christ. Amen. Half-life. You may have heard the phrase before. In addiction, it refers to the length of time that it takes for half of a drug to leave your system. It also refers to that if you're doing psychotropics, uh, depression medication, all those things. Half-life refers to that as well. How long it takes something to leave your system. And as uh, I was thinking about that, I was wondering if maybe the same thing applied to our life of faith. After we get all excited for Jesus Christ, and we get on board with the faith, and we get all that momentum going, is there like a half-life? Like all of a sudden some of it, the original joy fades. Some people say it does. Some people say it does not. What is your experience? Does praising God seem fresh every day? Does it seem to be a chore? Do devotionals seem to be something that you have to do rather than something you want to do? And think about this. Scripture tells us we're going to spend all of eternity praising God and worshiping Him and blessing Him all throughout eternity. Does that sound like something monotonous? Does it sound like something that you're going to say, well, why can't I do other things? Or are you saying, praise God, I've wanted to do that my whole life anyway. Here's a little secret for you. You can start now. You can praise God through any storm, through any trial, through any tribulation. There is no such thing, let me share this with you, there is no such thing as a half-life of faith. Faith is... It doesn't disappear. It grows stronger or it is not faith. There's a living faith and a dead faith. There's not a half faith. Can't half believe into Jesus. You're invested or you're not. It's kind of like that story about uh, the chicken and the pig talking about the farmer and how much they love the farmer. And the chicken was saying, yeah, well... You know, I, I give an egg every day from the farmer and he loves me because of it. And the pig said he loves me more. And he says, why do you say that? He says, because when he eats bacon, it's a sacrifice. For you, it's a commitment. <laughs> That's the difference, isn't it? You're either all invested or you're making a commitment. Jesus Christ asks us to surrender all. And He did. He already did. He gave His life for us. He did not hold back. And that's why when Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the life, He meant it. That's not the only time He said those things either. But I will say this. Jesus, when He says He is the life, isn't saying one of the lives. A life. A possibility exists that there might be some other more lives out there. He is saying, the life. Capital T, the. Not 
one of many, the only life. All else are not life. Do you agree with me? Four people over here do. Anybody over here agree? Jesus Christ is life. Nothing else is. This is a bottom line of faith. You can't get it anywhere else. You can't get it in a jar, bottle, through any other religion, any other dynamic or guru or new age philosophy or self-awareness, Reiki chant, anything like that is not life. Life is not from those things. It is directly from and is Jesus Christ. Now I want to share with you why that's important. You see, a lot of religions out there talk about Jesus. Acknowledge that He was a a good prophet, a good man. All of them acknowledge that He was crucified. But the difference between Christianity and any other religion is our leader was raised from the dead. Oh, yeah, and He's God's Son. No other religion says our leader was God's only begotten Son. Now, if you think about that for a moment, doesn't that make that different? It also makes it unbelievable for others that God could die. They don't understand. How could Jesus die? We even sing it. Amazing love, how can it be that my Lord, my King would die for me? For me. But the amazing thing is that it's our Lord, God's Son, God Himself dying on that tree. But people don't see that and they miss the life part. The cross is a life-giving tree with the resurrection. Never forget that. You see, a lot of people want to talk about the cross, but why don't we wear a picture of the empty tomb or the stone that's rolled away or that empty grave? The cross shows how He died, but the empty tomb shows what happens next. We don't live in the cross life. We live in the resurrected life of Christ. That is life. The cross signifies the death we die with Jesus Christ. And we always want to sing about the cross and all the wondrous cross, but what about the empty tomb? That's because nobody's there. And you won't be in one either. That's life. That's a good thing. Jesus said that some people say, well, you know, I understand all this and I've understood it my whole life. I, you know, I don't see any reason why I've got to do anything special since I already know this is true. But Jesus said to some folks who uh, were not really willing to listen in John chapter 9 about a man who was born blind. He said, now this is the man who was born blind speaking to the church questioning Jesus' ability to heal. And the man who was blind said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. 
But one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Heard that in Amazing Grace, haven't you? Do you have that testimony? You were blind, but now you see. Or did you always say, I've always seen and never ever had a problem knowing who Jesus was? Or was there a time when you realized He had to give you life for you to have it? It's a good question, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 41 of the same chapter, He finds that man. And He says if to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin. And now you say, we see. Therefore your sin remains. This was the Pharisees saying, are we blind too? And Jesus says those words. You see, if we say, I've never been lost. I've never been blind. I've not needed redemption. We are blind. Truly. And have not yet seen. Why? Because we need grace. And if we don't Understand that selling short the grace of God is a tragic thing to do. When Thomas came before Jesus and made his great confession, Jesus said in in that great chapter in verse 29 that blessed are those who, having seen, not seen and believe, are the ones who are blessed rather than those who have not seen. As you see on the screen, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And what we're talking about here are people who have not seen Jesus face to face but still believe. Do you understand that takes a greater faith, a greater trust? Why? Because everything in this world is going to tell you it's not true. That He is not the way. That He is not the truth. And that you have other sorts of ways for life to happen. There will be people who tell you that reincarnation is the way to go until you get to nirvana. There will be people who tell you that you can be a good person and God will bless you for being a good person and therefore the kingdom is based on you being a pretty good person. But nowhere in Scripture does it say anything but that you are saved by grace through faith, not by being a good person because in that same verse it says, not by works lest anybody should boast about what they've done. And that's a scary awakening if you're trying to get it on what you've done. Life does not come by what you do. I came up with a word. I guess it's a word. It is now because I wrote it. The word is life giver. Like a lifesaver, but life giver. And that is a title I give to Jesus. He's a life giver. We are not alive without the life giver. We may be surviving, but that's about it. Why? Because when Jesus Christ enters into your life, the transformation within is so incredibly different inside that we know we've moved from one thing to another and we didn't do it. Look at this staunch Jew, murderer, 
persecutor of the church, a Hebrew. His name was Saul. He was persecuting Christians, lighting them up to be stoned, executed. When Jesus became real, He became Paul and an evangelist to the Gentiles to become believers in this Jesus He was persecuting. There was a transformation, wasn't there? When Jesus comes, there's a difference. Life comes. Paul was an author and an ushering in of death. And then he became an ushering in of the life of Christ to those who would believe. That's a good thing. And what about doubting Thomas? I mentioned him a little bit. In John 20, verses 27 through 29, we find his story. Now, Jesus has appeared to all the disciples with Thomas. And he gets the name of doubting Thomas because of this chapter, but after this chapter, he loses that title. However, everybody calls him doubting Thomas to this day because of the moment of doubt he had in John 20. But he had said to the disciples who said Jesus is a resurrected King and Savior, unless I thrust my hand in His side and see the scars in His hands and feet, I will by no means believe. And when Jesus appeared in the room where the disciples were with Thomas this time, He said, what was on the screen now? i got to flip to it. Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And this is what Jesus said to Thomas. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now I want you to hear what that verse, what Jesus said there, means. When He says, you've seen Me, it means you've observed Me face to face. You know that I'm real. You know that I'm alive and resurrected from the dead. And you have put your trust in Me completely. That's what this belief means. You know that I am who I am. I'm the Son of God. You have put all you are on Me. You invested who you are and your future in me because you saw me. Thomas changed. He was no longer doubting Thomas. As we know through history, he went from that doubting person in that moment to the evangelist of India. There are other stories throughout Scripture. The Gerasenian demoniac filled with the legion Jesus casts out all those demons into the swine who run down the hill and and drown. And the man is there clothed and in his right mind. And Jesus says to him, Go tell all your friends what God has done for you. Maybe that demoniac would be going, No, I did it. 
I don't know that there's anything God did for me after all. Uh, you know, uh, I think I did it. I don't think he could ever say that. He was living in chains, naked in the tombs, and God delivered him from that. There was a change. When Jesus enters, your life begins. This is how it is. Do you know that the transformation that Jesus makes in you is for a purpose? First of all, to convince you that Jesus is. And that nothing else could do for you what He did. I know for a fact, I know that I know that I know that when I met Jesus Christ and He changed me, I was no longer afraid of tomorrow or eternity. And that was my biggest fear among the many I had. But in an instant, it was gone. You couldn't have took it from me, no matter what you said or how much promises you made. It means something had to reach down and say, that's irrelevant anymore with your fear. It doesn't make sense in the truth and the life of Jesus Christ. I all of a sudden knew that life was through Jesus. I knew this. I knew that I would be with Him in eternity when ten seconds before I had no clue. I didn't do that. Jesus did that. There was a transformation. I also could do what Thomas said and say, My Lord and my God. Do you understand when He's your Lord and your God, everything else is out of the equation? There's no Jesus and. I think my wife and I were talking about a shirt that says Jesus and coffee, that's enough. It's Jesus and. It's not anything there. It's just Jesus is enough. Jesus is life. Coffee is coffee. Coffee's temporary. So are feelings. So are thoughts. But life in Christ is eternal. It's the only thing that is. Everything else fades away. There is no half life. There's life. Or there's no life. There is no half belief. (laughs) Don't you see it? Belief in Jesus isn't enough. The demons believe and they tremble. They know, and so does Satan, that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that. They're still demons. They're still just as wicked as they were. You know, Satan believes in Jesus and he should because he faced Him often enough, didn't he? Every time he came out losing battle, didn't he? In the desert, on Calvary, at the resurrection, final judgment, all of it, he loses. He's still at it, isn't he? But he believes in Jesus. And he thinks if you do, you have a problem because you you won't believe in Him. He doesn't want you to have what Jesus has for you. He wants you to question it. Satan believes that Jesus exists. And He's God's anointed one. 
And there's nothing He can do to stop it. But let me share something with you. There has to be a movement in Thomas's confession and in your confession of faith from, oh, I believe in Jesus. Yes, He rose from the dead. I know all that. I know He died to save me from my sins. I know all this stuff. I've read it. I've heard it. To, when I think of Jesus, I know He's my Lord and He's redeemed me. I feel Him in my soul. I know He's real. I know that I know that I know that He changed me when nothing else can. That's life. That's not half-life. That's not half-belief. It's 100%. There's no half and half. We talked about Jesus and coffee. There's no half and half with Jesus either. And there is no, as the man who said when his son was tormented by demons, I believe, help my unbelief. There's none of that in faith in Christ. There is, I believe. My unbelief is only by temptation, and other things. But my belief in Christ is secure because He is the only one who can do what He can do in me. This is the simplest way I can say it. When Jesus is in you, you can feel it. And you can know it. Because there's something different. There's a change. You want to be different because you are. You live different. You talk different. You think different. It's not always dramatic. For me, it was. I've seen, like I said, Saul and Thomas and the Gerasenian demonic, hundreds in Scripture. All of them were dramatic. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It just has to be that all of a sudden you're not happy unless Jesus is glorified in what you do. There is life. He is my life. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is talking to the Israelites. And he's giving them some instructions. Getting close to the end of his time with them. And he wants them to know how to live. To choose life. And he's encouraging them. He says, today I've said before you, blessing and cursing, life and death. Therefore, choose life. And then he says in verse 20, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, that you may cling to Him, for He is your life, and He is the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And that land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers is the promised land. It's the land of eternity. Of forever. If you don't believe God is your life and the length of every moment and every breath, you are in deception. You are being deceived and kidding yourself. And you're fooling nobody. I don't know how else to say that in any simpler way. If Jesus isn't your life and hope and joy and greatest thought in your life, you are deceived. We could call it denial, but it's worse than that. Deception means you believe what you believe is true and that it's enough. 
But if Jesus Christ hasn't manufactured a change inside of you, you don't know what He's able to do. It's awesome, awesome to see God do a miracle and you go, He's just awesome. I love when He does it. Because you know what it's like when He does it in you. By saving you. So on this resurrection day, what better way to celebrate it than to come out of the grips of empty religion, ideas about what is right and wrong, and into life. God's been trying for years to move us from death to life. And this morning, we have a perfect example of it. And I don't mean just the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. I mean the institution of Holy Communion. He takes death, His body, and His blood and makes it into life. Think about that for a moment, would you? Jesus' death gives life. When we partake of communion, we're entering into the celebration of His death that we may enter into His life, which is from the tomb, resurrected. We need to lay down everything at the cross and keep pressing through to Sunday to the resurrection. Not leave ourselves saying, okay, I left it there. I'm still the same person. I'm just leaving those things. I'm leaving those things there. But I'm dying with Christ. I'm not the same person. I'm resurrecting to a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Old, new. You understand? Old, new. They're two different things. Old man, says Paul, the new man is in Christ. The old man fashioned after Adam, the new man fashioned after Christ. Old, new. There's a difference. They're not the same thing. That difference you know because Jesus Christ has resurrected you into life. To wrap this up for you, and I think this will help. The difference between surviving and life is this. If there is no such thing as eternity, then all we are is a human race trying to keep the human race going on somehow made up on this planet by something, not God or something that cared for us, and we're just bound to futility. But God didn't do that. He said that when you come to Me, I will give you life. I will be the resurrection for you. And this little insight this morning as I was praying helped me understand this. It says when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that the temple veil was torn in two heaven to earth, top to bottom. And Jesus Christ went in and sprinkled His blood. This entry could only happen 
and survive if the person who made the entry was without sin. The high priest on the Day of Atonement had to have a rope around him to pull him out if he was unclean because God's Spirit would strike him dead. He hadn't performed the proper sacrifices. And it says Jesus went in there and sprinkled His blood and came back out. And as I was thinking about that, I said, God, that's really awesome, but God says, no, you're not getting this. The temple veil that rips from top to bottom is your heart. And God, through Jesus Christ, goes in and sprinkles clean your heart so that you are a new creation, so God's Spirit can dwell there. And when God dwells inside of you, you know there's a difference. Because you went from an unclean, unpure life and a broken life to a heart filled with God's Spirit. And that is what Jesus does. Oh, you say, Pastor, how come you can even say that? You know, He went into the temple of Israel. Scripture says, we are the temple of God. And John 14 also says that God came to dwell with us. That's good news. But He can't dwell in you if you think you don't need Him. And if you think He's just something to believe in rather than something that lives in you, there's a difference. I have uh, some sort of congestion thing going on. I believe in congestion, all right? But it's living in me. And I can tell the difference. And so can people around me. You stick around long enough, you'll go, man, you really got some congestion. You would believe in congestion. But if you had it in you, you would know how it affected you. What it made you feel like. What it made you want to do. It's the same true for Jesus. You can believe in Him, but when He's in you, you're different. And He's not a virus. He's life. And that's the good news this morning I wanted to share with you.